Welcome, and thank you for listening to this presentation hosted by the Center for Catholic Studies, located at Durham University in Durham, United Kingdom, a Center for Catholic Theology in the Public Academy. For more information, visit our website at www.centerforcatholicstudies.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at CCSDHAM. The following lecture was presented on the 21st of May, 2019, by Professor Alison Schell from University College London. The lecture was given as part of the Ushaw Lecture Series and is entitled, Staging Magic in English Catholic College Drama. Well, thank you so much for coming. Lovely to see so many old friends and to make some new ones. Everyone should have a handout. Um, uh, and um, I should be um, flipping between uh, the PowerPoints for visual um, stuff and, um, uh, and um, the longer quotations that I'll be referring to um, are on the handout. A young boy grows up in a society where people of his kind inspire hatred and fear. He's sought out by educational mentors from that social group. He travels to a far-flung school. At that school, the teachers are anxious to protect their pupils against black magic. And their efforts involve a searching psychological exploration, during which those pupils learn a good deal about themselves. The premise of a well-known series of children's novels by J.K. Rowling. <laughs> they present some unexpected parallels to the experience of many Catholic boys during England's penal times, those who travelled abroad to the colleges set up on the continent. Drama was um, an important part of the education they received at these institutions. Uh, and um, at what's called at Hogwarts School, defence against the dark arts looms large within that drama. Well, I thought about calling this talk Harry Potter and the Catholic Exiles. <laughs> Or, um, since the plays I was, uh, I'm talking about were mostly in Latin, <laughs> um, and as you've heard, this paper is um, drawn from work I've been doing on this fascinating understudied material, um, part of um, the, uh, the, um, this Leverhulme project. Um, so I want to set it in, um, in the context of um, drama that was happening on the um, English mainland. English Catholic colleges were set up on the continent during Elizabeth I's reign, when it became clear that England was going to remain Protestant for the foreseeable future. Catholic schools, Catholic tutors did exist on the English mainland, but they were always vulnerable. Rising generations of Catholic boys needed a high-level humanist education if the faith had a hope of remaining alive. And nurturing priestly vocations was an especially important task for these colleges. Priests obviously had to be well educated. And across Europe, the drama was part of a humanist endeavour for both Catholics and Protestants. Players trained performance in public speaking, Latinity, memory skills. They also presented moral messages attractively. They aimed to encourage both actors and audience to follow virtuous paths and shun vice. And the Jesuit order had a particularly large part to play here. Um, the Ratio Studiorum, the famous Jesuit guidance on what should go in the scholarly curriculum, has a lot to say about the educational benefits of drama. 
But non-Jesuit individuals and institutions were well aware of it too. And this material still tends to be quite literally off the map for historians of English theatre because it was mostly written and performed in mainland Europe. Yet its writers, its performers, most definitely felt themselves to be English. They were intensely nationalistic. They were dedicated to the reconversion of their country. And part of my aim with this project is to integrate their work more fully into what we think of as English literature, English culture. But why should magic have been so prominent in these plays? Well, uh, the magic and magicians were popular features of much early modern theatre in Britain as across Europe. Um, uh, 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 Marlowe's Dr. Faustus is a well-known example. And here he is in a contemporary woodcut. Um, another is Prospero in Shakespeare's The Tempest. And here's an image from a spectacular recent RSC production, um, Sun Beers Prospero, and there's a hologram aerial. Um, and this um, uh, concentration on magic would have taken on an, extra, uh, an added charge in a Reformation context where you've often got the notion of magic being deployed for controversial ends. Protestant polemicists were ready to compare Catholic priests to magicians, to call transubstantiation a kind of conjuring, to imply that Catholic power is demonically inspired. Inevitably, this transferred to drama sometimes. For instance, um, uh, um, uh, uh, Durham um, uh, uh, individual Barnaby Barnes, um, his play The Devil's Charter, um, it opens with his, uh, its anti-hero Rodrigo Borgia making a Faustian pact with the devil so he can become Pope. After all, the orthodox Christian worldview doesn't permit the idea of good magic. All magic leads to the devil, and that's where the Harry Potter analogies break down. Miracles do occupy something of the same metaphysical space as good magic. But the notion of miracle was exceptionally problematic in this age of confessionalisation, the, uh, the marshalling of Catholic and Protestant Christians along denominational lines. Miracles were what your own church validated. Miracle workers within other churches were assumed um, either to be fraudulent or to be diabolically aided. In other words, they were like magicians. Fraud could, it, uh, could itself be is seen as part of the devil's agenda. Reginald Scott, the great sceptical debunker of witchcraft at this, uh, in this era, saw Satan at work not in anomalous events themselves, but in the superstitious awe that the idea of an anomalous event engendered in the observer. This is the first quotation on your handouts. If we shall yield that to be divine, supernatural and miraculous, which we cannot comprehend, a witch, a papist, a conjurer, a cousiner and a juggler may make us believe they are gods. Or else, with more impiety, we shall ascribe such power and omnipotency unto them, or unto the devil, as only and properly appertained to God. Note the way papists, mountebanks, magicians are all listed together. No wonder that Catholic college drama contains the odd right for instance, in Joseph Simons' play Theatistus, which I'll be discussing in detail presently, there are some, um, well, there's, um, there are a group of naughty pages that figure quite largely in this, um, in this drama, and they engage in magical experiments. And at one point, they're described as travestying the mass, saying the mass is devoid of meaning, so it's Protestant magic. <laughs> 
Perhaps one mustn't overthink the popularity of theatrical magic. After all, there are so many ways in which magic and theatre just go together naturally. Magic is suspenseful in a way that promises the unknown and the illicit. Um, it, um, um, it, it gets everybody um, pondering. It, it invites reflection on the illusory qualities of theatre. And surely everybody but a die-hard anti-theatricalist would have enjoyed the opportunity for spectacle provided by magazines and conjuring tricks. And in the case of Catholic college drama, this spectacle would often have been cutting edge. Many of these colleges, um, as you've heard, were controlled by the Jesuit order. They played a major role in developing stage technology in this era. And here and elsewhere, a penchant for evoking wonder um, was important to the Jesuit mission. These plays were an important form of what we now call outreach. And there's a potential clash between that and their educational function because um, plays performed by the colleges were often popular civic events, but not everyone in the audience would have been able to understand the Latin in which the plays were performed um, because um, speaking Latin was so good for the students. And that's why a concentration on spectacle was one way of maximising their entertainment value for everyone. Um, David Buch, um, a, a, a second quotation on your handouts, has commented that Jesuit theatrical productions stressed the religious and miraculous aspects of the marvellous by means of devils, demons of vengeance, ghosts, sorcerers, the occult, transformations, stage machinery and magic. Well, given that these plays um, were written for performance by the young scholars at these colleges, they constitute a kind of children's and young adult literature. Surely that's another reason why they frequently draw magical themes. Um, the, the fantastic element then and now, um, uh, uh, um, you know, I, um, I, I think that um, uh, the 17th century isn't much different from the 21st here. Um, there's just something about magic that appeals to you for imagination. Um, but the didactic message, pitting devil worshippers against followers of Christ, would have pleased the masters. Certainly, these plays can be pretty unsparing in their use of diabolism and horror. That isn't a given in stage depictions of magic. And it's particularly striking in drama from Jesuit-run institutions. Next, I've got a picture from a drama, Pietas Victrix. Um, and, um, and, and you can see top and bottom images, uh, uh, they both show the air swarming with evil spirits. And here's a close-up, so you can see the evil spirits. Um, well, the Jesuits were and are an educational order. Cautioning against evil formed at this date a large part in Jesuit catechesis of the young. Um, and this is graphically demonstrated by my next image, um, which is um, uh, uh, from the Order's Centenary volume, Imago Primi Secoli, 1640, that was published, drawing explicitly on what uh, Jean Delimo and others have called the pedagogy of fear. What a Gothic image this is. Um, see the bats, see the ruins, um, <laughs> um, um, and... Um, the accompanying verse, um, um, sorry, that's not on the, um, uh, um, on the slide, cautions in translation, um, uh, um, that more foul is another monster, more to be feared by innocent minds which the active care of the teacher may teach. The appalling face and fearful limbs of wickedness. Which illustrates well how the Jesuit view of education foregrounded the idea of, um, well, scaring the young for their own safety. 
Um, and another addition, uh, um, uh, um, illustration from the same source shows a very small child alone in a very large room near a blazing fire, protected by a fire guard. Now that fire guard symbolises the care of the church. Um, and it graphically illustrates how um, the, the, um, the, the, these educators um, f first invoke dangerous and frightening things and then um, uh, uh, um, reassured about their ability to protect from them. Um, so material which we might now think 15 or even 18 certificates, in other words, unsuitable for children, could then have been thought especially appropriate for children. <laughs> well, I'd like now to talk about a specific text which is Joseph Simon's play Theatistus, performed in 1624 at Saint-Omer, um, uh, uh, um, sometimes English as St. Omer's, a Jesuit-run college which mainly took boys of what we now think of as secondary school age. And Simon's was the master of rhetoric there during much of the 1620s. Um, his plays were very well regarded. Um, most, most of these plays were quite ephemeral um, that, um, that, that you, um, you did for the boys, but um, his were revived, his were printed, that was quite unusual. And here's an image from one of the editions. And Theatistus is one of the many plays from an English Jesuit source which draws on Byzantine history. Byzantine history was a very popular quarry for plots. Well, church historical things seems in general extremely common. Um, and the political machinations of the Byzantine era lent themselves really well to drama. Um, and especially the controversy between iconoclasts and those who venerated icons. That was so easy to map onto uh, more contemporary conflicts between Catholics and Protestants. Game of icons, as it were. <laughs> and finally, and most relevantly here, Byzantine history is full of magic and witchcraft. Well, the titular character in Theoctistus is Chancellor of the Boy Emperor Michael Balbus, an upright character. He tries to stem the decadence and corruption among the youth at court, but for his pains, he gets ostracised, exiled, finally assassinated. And early on, um, uh, um, uh, um, on, the, um, uh, um, on your handouts, um, I've given an excerpt from this scene, uh, Theotistus reprimands a body of pages who are engaged in gaming. They're, they're, they're throwing dice, they're playing chess, they're playing cards, and they're also playing, um, uh, 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 playing with magic. The implication is that one type of pursuit leads to another. Um, and I've got here a picture from a Jesuit conduct manual, uh, Ridicus Christianus. Here is a uh, uh, heat being accepted by many sorts of games. Um, there's dice in the foreground. Um, do I see backgammon? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, well, it may be an idea, um, a, a rough idea of how this scene was staged. Um, and on your handouts, um, uh, 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 the excerpt begins with two pages um, playing, um, throwing dice. Um, who, um, and, um, and um, uh, the, game, uh, the first game to points out that um, his companion has thrown the dog throw. That, that, that's two ones, for those of you who are not some sort of constant dice players. Um, and um, it's a sign of ill luck from classical times. The first page replies, some mad fury is sicking the little dogs on me, which is jokingly meant. Um, but it's no coincidence um, that, um, that, uh, that the same page is the one who owns a book of magic with the title Stygian Sybil. 
Um, and um, and um, he consults it for guidance on the art of summoning hither the gods from the deep. Um, and above that, um, and, uh, then he got two pages um, uh, um, playing chess. Um, but, uh, one says, my man has your king trapped. The other, you're wrong. I swear by Vernus, the entrance to hell. Well, casual swearing indicates a downward path thereon. Um, he's speaking more truly than he realises um, in evoking the entrance to hell. So, um, and there's another page, he's playing dice, that's um, a bit above that. Um, and um, uh, uh, he petitions Venus that he may throw the Venus throne. That's a favourable one where each face shows a different number. This happens. So, the powers of darkness are all too attentive to the page's mischief. Um, and Theotistus storms into this decadent scene. Away with this wicked equipment, the source of evil, he cries. He disrupts the games, he confiscates the book of magic, he orders Melindus' own page to burn it. However, Melindus doesn't do so at first. He places it in Theotistus' library, which is a fateful decision, because the emperor's evil uncle Bardus finds it there, when he and the emperor are searching for evidence of Theotistus' ill will because they want to frame him and get rid of him. Um, and um, this is... Um, had, um, um, I think you've um, already um, worked it out, number four in your handouts. Um, Bardus um, picks up the book, reads um, a passage that recalls the page's interrupted spell earlier. Whoever you are who are eager to placate Dis and summon the Marnes from Acheron's lake, apply your attention to this. Caesar, why look for more evidence of his dark mind? And they're interrupted by Melindus, uh, who's thick to Caesar's page, you'll remember. He returns to burn the Stygian civil. He doesn't see them in the room. And he bears a lighted black torch. And he talks to, he apostrophizes to, uh, this torch. Uh, Come, firebrand, and swirl fires like uh, phlegathons around it. Spread your flames of abominable light. Toss on high your sordid locks, your pitch and your sulphur. The torch would have been a striking visual synosia with a really unpleasant smell. Audiences wouldn't have noticed this, particularly if pitch and sulphur had been used in constructing it. Um, not good if you had asthma. <laughs> um, and um, uh, it would probably have been made from a stick rag, wrapped in rags or led to twisted hemp, saturated, saturated in flammable material, which might be wax, tallow, pitch, rosin, gum. Um, if pitch were used, that would have given you a good steady flame. Um, and if sulphur were used, the flames would have burnt blue like this. Um, that was quite a common way to evoke the supernatural on the early modern stage. Um, famous um, uh, um, reference to this comes in Shakespeare's Richard III. Um, you remember the scene um, uh, uh, right at the end of the play where he's visited by the ghosts of those who've, uh, who he's murdered. He observes the lights burn blue. Next quotation on your handouts. So uh, it would really have increased the uncanny effect perhaps have been a reason for silence to refer to abominable light. And Melindus follows this up, um, back to quotation four, by um, addressing the book as if it were indeed the sibyl of the title, rather than an inanimate object. So I should explain that sibyls were seen in um, quite diverse ways. Sometimes they were, they were seen as um, pagan precursors of Christ, and therefore obviously a good thing. Um, but sometimes they were intended to be evil, and that's what's going on here. Come, Sybil, sepulchral flames summon you. Again, I adjure you, Stygian Sybil. 
dark sister of the Furies, hand yourself over to my custody. Where are you, dread daughter-in-law of Avernian Pluto? Wrinkled one, do you still not draw near to the flaming torch after being called three times? Come out of your hiding place. At which point, uh, the Emperor and Bardos come out of their hiding place. They discover themselves from Lindus and they seize him. Well, this is a highly ritualistic scene. It makes a big deal of book burning. The time on the way to dispose of magic books on stage. Prospero in the Tempest, he says more than once that he'll burn his books as a way of uh, putting magic behind him. Faustus' last utterance before he's borne off to hell is, I'll burn my books, but it doesn't work. The implication is that such books are evil, not just for the material they contain, but for what they are in themselves. And this way that Melinda summons the Sybil three times and quite formally, that recalls the practice of naming evil spirits in some exorcism rites. But in exorcism, this is done to banish them. For, for Melinda to summon an evil spirit, even as um, a rhetorical, rather histrionic gambit, is surely inadvisable. We've already seen these talk of this kind condemned in the play. And sure enough, he's placed under arrest as a result of these ill-advised words. But, in a further twist, as you have gathered, those who arrest him are malignly disposed themselves. They could, in some sense, be seen as evil entities um, summoned by the, the invocation. Typical of Simon's strategy for dramatising the consequences of um, magical activity. He's identifying real-life correlatives for malefic supernatural agents. Where spells are uttered, bad things happen, but it doesn't take a stretch to believe in them. I think that's deliberate. It makes the threat posed by magic appear more imminent. And we even see hell staged in, um, in, um, in Act 2 of the Theotistus. Next quotation in your hand, that's number 6. The stage directions read... The scene suddenly changes to a horrid grove. There, the enormous mouth of a dark cavern appears as the door to, of the lower world. And you can see the line of descent here from the hell mouths of medieval theatre, and indeed Renaissance theatre. And Janes, who is a sorcerer, declares, let the play of magic be revealed. Let the rock revolve and the cave expand into the temple sacred to sticks, and you have a rock opening um, and a small shrine scene, along with an altar bearing a goat. About the walls, um, various members, various limbs of the human body, like things cursed. Um, and here is an image of a similar scene with a goat on the altar from Bridicus um, Christianus. And Janice continues... The votive offerings of the Circaean brood hang gleaming on the walls. If someone has dealt a horrible death to an infant snatched from the womb of its mother, blood spatters this altar. Parts of the body hang as votive offerings in the dome. This is a maimed head. That is a liver torn from a gashed side. Here you see bloody entrails in the heart. There you see eyes. You can tell the hammer horror aesthetic is pretty unsparing. Um, it presents a diabolical parody of the kind of shrines at which votive offerings are left. Here's a picture of one such. Often made of wax, these. 
And in this context, it's interesting that a waxen effigy of Theotistus is brought out later in the scene um, and smeared with poison and placed on the altar. That, again, increases the sense that pious practices are being travestied. We are going from this quotation that the theatre at, um, at, um, at St. Helens had a revolving stage, which is not uncommon in its early 17th century theatre. Later in the scene, you know, the, the rock revolves yet again and it changes into an apothecary shop full of poisons. Um, and, um, so, and, um, uh, so, so um, it's, um, it's a kind of discovery space, um, a, a versatile one for revealing occult practices. After all, occult does mean hidden. And one's meant to experience escalating horror at each new revelation. And further to augment the terror of the scene, the goat on the altar appears to be alive. It tosses its head to the sound of thunder. And monsters stick their head out here and there. A troop of evil genii dance, during which the scene temporarily returns to the Byzantine court, which is uh, a bilocation. It uh, disrupts one's sense of place. It reminds one of the effect of, of black magic on the play's real world. And a later scene appears to draw on Kundra's techniques. Um, there's a, um, a, a, um, it's all a bit complex at this point, but um, a figure simulating Theoctistus is summoned up by the sorcerers, and he puts a snake on a card or a piece of paper, the word is charter, um, and the snake turns into a gold chain in front of the audience, which has the power of killing anyone who wears it. And I think you'd probably um, um, do this if a paper, the card had secret envelope-style compartments in which the actor concealed first the chain, then the, well, one hopes it was an imitation snake. <laughs> and the trick effectively adds to the fakery of the theatistus. Well, all these scenes bear out um, uh, uh, Julio Caro Barroja's comments um, on uh, Catholic theologians' tendency to believe in the reality of diabolic power. That's the seventh quotation on your handouts. There is no doubt that at the end of the 16th and the beginning of the 17th century, there was a positive obsession with the devil's physical appearance in the world. Well, the idea of picturing hell in this much detail is characteristically Ignatian in the meditation of hell, uh, which forms part of the spiritual exercises. The exertant is told to examine hell's length, breadth and depth. And Simons is by no means alone as a Jesuit dramatist who obliges his audience to spend time in hell. One of the best-known Jesuit plays, um, uh, uh, Kenodoxus, by J uh, uh, Jacob Biedemann, that tells the story of a scholar who dies widely loved and admired, but is then discovered to be enthralled to the sin of pride, so he's dragged off to hell. All these plays really get at academics. <laughs> and according to contemporary accounts, um, this play had a profound cautionary effect on both audience and actors. Um, several of the actors actually um, uh, uh, took the spiritual exercise afterwards. Some, um, uh, 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 um, some took um, vows thereafter. And, then it's, uh, and Kenodoxus, like Theoctistus, is, I think, a suggestive point of comparison to um, the best-known um, play about diabolic pacts, um, uh, Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. In fact, the, the Faustus story was really popular in dramas across the continent at this date. It's even possible that um, Marlowe's play was known about by Biedemann or Simons or both. Uh, the English colleges did keep an eye on mainland theatre. 
Um, you may remember um, back in 2014, um, a copy of the Shakespeare first folio owned by the English College at St. Uh, St. Omer's was recently traced to the public library there. Um, there was another uh, St. Omer's play that um, drew on uh, Shakespeare's Henry VI trilogy. Martin Wiggins has written about that. But Marlowe's play and Simons's play have very different takes on the whole idea that, that young people shouldn't dabble in magic. Um, Dr. Faustus has a comic scene where uh, a couple of boys, Rafe and Robin, try out magic and they're transformed into an ape and a dog. Um, uh, it's a comic scene. It's from a, a long way from the tragic trajectory of the main plot. Uh, but the connotations of such a scene would have been very, very different, obviously, in the context of educational drama, um, where, as you've already seen, the moral choices taken by youths were really the whole point of the plays. And in another scene from Theictistus, op optical spectacle is deployed for magical effect. The magicians have planted a suspicion in the emperor's mind that there's a plot to assassinate him. And they petition God to reveal the name of the traitor. That's um, over the, um, uh, on the next um, page of your handouts, handout eight, um, uh, number eight. At the end of the prayers, the stage opens behind them. Soon, a light is seen in the air, which would have been um, uh, uh, where gradually, letter by letter, is revealed the name Theotistus. You could have done this, um, uh, um, uh, this gradual revelation by a magic lantern projection, I think, just gradually uncovering um, it letter by letter. Um, well, it must have been an awe-inspiring moment, actually, um, despite the fact that the audience knows it's a piece of misdirection achieved through villainy and black magic. The more so because it's reminiscent of the Old Testament story of Belshazzar's feast. Um, you'll remember... Um, uh, 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 this message, many, many, take up parsing, numbered, numbered, weighed, divided, miraculously displayed in a wall, interpreted by the prophet Daniel as foretelling the fall of Babylon. Here's Rembrandt's depiction of the scene. And I think its counterpart in Theotistus beautifully illustrates the potential double-edgedness of staging a supernatural event. As first experienced, it commands wonder and obedience. The emperor finds it an entirely convincing proof of Theotistus' villainy. The audience, of course, knows more than the emperor does, but it's quite, I, I imagine it was quite hard for them to remember that um, the, the effect has been brought about by the villains of the piece. Obviously, in retrospect, such scenes set up questions about how they might have been achieved through trickery, particularly if um, uh, uh, the messages they convey are to somebody's advantage, uh, particularly if we know that the persons associated with them are not of the highest integrity. Um, they problematise the categories of genuine miracle and illicit magic and mere conjuring, and they draw attention to the conjurations of the theatrical medium. And this dizzyingly reflexive re um, relationship to truth doesn't stop there. I think it's uh, important to remember in the context of Catholic college plays um, that um, the, they would, uh, uh, their, um, their, their writers... Um, would have seen drama as um, representing a truth that was otherwise invisible, an allelogical demonstration, rather a Neoplatonic idea, but sidelining the suspicion of imagination which Plato himself had. And that's, this idea of an allelogical demonstration really transmutes, puts aside um, a, a, the usual equation of drama with illusion. It's saying, yes, it's illusion, but it's at the service of a higher cause. Yet, of course, 
Um, the contrary idea that drama lied could be and was brought into play by those, uh, those who were at odds with this particular worldview. And when in the rest of my talk, you're going to see these two perspectives clashing. Well, my story at this point um, turns from the full-blown Baroque dramas written in Catholic in education institutions on the continent to some more hole-in-corner proselytising, the kind which Catholic priests sometimes resorted to in England. I'll open out my inquiry to ask how magic in educational drama related to other saved evocations of supernatural encounter. There's a particular type of story which recurs in early modern autobiographical narratives, which are written by ex-Catholics or personal testimonies delivered or collected by someone with inside knowledge of Catholicism. And these are accounts of personated apparitions. Um, Catholics, whether priests or, um, or kind of servants of priests, um, staging supernatural encounters with the intention of coercing someone to do something, typically to convert to Catholicism or enter the religious life. And some of these were written up around the time that Joseph Simons was writing by one John D G. G, I've been, um, just say a bit about him. Um, he was a Church of England cleric. He became very involved in Catholic affairs in the early 1620s in and around his Lancashire parish as well as London. And by his own account, he was on the point of going over to Rome. But he was present on a notorious occasion when, um, at a Catholic sermon in London's Blackfriars, the floor collapsed. It killed several of the congregation. Th those that weren't ki uh, killed were arrested. Um, G was arrested for his attendance at this, and he turned government informer, and he wrote two accounts of his brush with Catholicism. The first is called The Foot Out of the Snare, the second is called New Shreds of the Old Snare. And these included several accounts of personated apparitions, and they all referred to women. And the next rather long quotation on your handouts is an episode from the story of uh, one particular heiress, Frances Peard, how she was persuaded to enter the religious life. Um, a couple of Jesuits living in her house, Mr. Fisher and Mr. Wayman, urge her to consider this course. They take her to a particularly moving sermon. The extract continues the story, and I'll read it now. This sermon much inflamed the gentlewoman with zeal to become a nun, which Mr. Fisher well perceived. And the night following, after this gentlewoman had been in her bed some hour or two, there seemed to be a great light in her chamber, which at the first beholding thereof astonished her, and then presently after appeared unto her a shape like unto a woman all in white. From her face seemed to come little streams of fire or glittering light. This woman shape first bade her not be afraid, for she came to her with a message from heaven, and said her name was St. Lucy, who, being born of honourable parents and of a great family, had great riches left unto her by her friends. Which riches, fearing lest they should be a hindrance to her in the process of godliness, she bestowed all upon the poor, and lived a monastical life. By means whereof she is now one of the most glorious saints in heaven. And then, said this crafty vision to the gentlewoman, do you also dispose of those worldly things that you have to the poor and go your ways and live a religious life among the good company of virgins at Brussels? And so you sh uh, shall you be sure to be saved. 
And so this vision left her. The next morning came to visit her Mr. Fisher and Mr. Wayman, to whom she presently began to relate what she had seen that night, and that St. Lucy had appeared to her and talked with her. Oh, what a happy woman are you, quoth Mr. Fisher. You may see what it is to be a Catholic and not be to be of our church. Thus doth God work his miracles amongst us daily, and by such visions does God commonly reveal himself unto us. What will you now do then, said Mr. Wayman? Will you not become a nun? Yes, for so, said the gentlewoman, I will be advised by you. So then they wished her to get her monies ready, and one of them would be her conductor to Brussels. But, quoth Mr. Wayman, you had best give £100 presently to poor Catholics in thankfulness for St. Lucy's goodwill towards you. You had best put it in our hands. <laughs> G believes that this and similar episodes are staged by the Jesuits and um, comments, um, next quotation, for the actor that puts life into this mimical artillery by motion and voice, that may be done by some nimble-handed and footed novice Jesuitable boy. That can as easily put on the person of St. Lucy or the Virgin Mary as a playboy can act winged Mercury or eagle-mounted Ganymedes. But the Jesuits being or having actors of such dexterity, I see no reason but that they should set up a company for themselves which surely will put down the fortune, Red Bull, Cockpit and Globe. Reference here to a series of well-known London theatres. This knowing allusion to boy actors may well have derived from G's knowledge of the college drama I was talking about earlier. Well, you can see from this how um, uh, uh, the idea that Catholics are no more than players segues into a notion of them as conjurers, another kind of illusionistic performance. I've already mentioned how both comparisons were a standard part of Protestant polemic. And G really makes the most of this in the introduction to his pamphlet, New Shreds of the Old Snare. Quotation 11 on your handouts. I should, um, loyal and obviously refers to Jesuits. Um, mirabilities means people who um, deal in marvels. Our loyal and mirabilities as yet impudently persist to play their pranks among us. Some snips of their legadermain tricks shufflingly twisted and deeply dyed in grain, here I display in a new web. For the eking out the curtains of the tiring house, the dressing room of their former stage, in array and manner as followeth, and then he breaks into rhyme. All that can sing or say, come and hear a Jesuit's play. Well, there's more here than the usual generalised accusation that Catholic priests were guilty of theatrical illusion and quasi-magical jiggery-pokery. The question G poses, the question he answers in the affirmative, uh, is, do their actual practices lie them, uh, lay them open to this criticism? And there's a, certainly a good deal of verisimilitude in his detailed analysis of how this and similar spectacles might have been presented. Next quotation. But now, for manner of cleanly conveyance of this business, in the manifold pageants of heavenly visibles, I have thought with myself divers times to what kind of operation I should prefer it. Somewhat, I think, may be done this way, by paper lanterns or transparent glasses to irradiate and redouble light and cast out painted shapes by the multiplication of the species visibiles and artificial directing of refractions. Um, this idea of how you manage light, for instance, that would relate to the specific example I've given where the woman's chamber is described as being brightly illuminated, quite a big deal, of course, in the 17th century. 
Um, and um, the apparition described in Jesus' account would have been easy enough to stage by dressing a boy uh, up in a white gown. Um, and um, in fact, she comments um, with regard to many other stories of the kind he collects um, that this feature is a positive cliche. Um, a woman, 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 he, um, uh, he complained, dressed in white, white, white. Um, and um, uh, as for the little streams of fire or glittering light, well, um, I looked in a 19th century companion of conjuring tricks um, uh, um, to find out how you might make your face shine. Um, and it suggested that you should mix one part of phosphorus to six of olive oil, warm it in a bath of heated sand, then apply it to the face to make it glow with a luminous lambent flame. <laughs> the writer concludes disingenuously, no danger whatsoever at this experiment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder if the apparition of St. Lucy looks anything like this figure. Um, oh, yes, it's uh, um, um, clad in a phosphorus-soaked gown. This is apparently done um, with a, um, a, a very, very strong solution of bleach. And, well, it's clear from G's account he believes the, the vision is staged to get hold of Francis Pitt's wealth. But how far are we to believe accounts written by those who, like him, were hostile to Catholicism? Well, in G's case, he's a very well-informed source. His pamphlets go well beyond standard derivative anti-Catholic polemic. Um, historians use them all the time, actually. They're full of detail about, for instance, the underground Catholic book trade, all the Catholic priests operating in London at the time. Um, and, um, so um, I reckon he's on to something here. Um, and, um, and in any case... Uh, what he calls personated apparitions, were sometimes part of the Jesuit way of doing things. Quite apart from the educational drama I've been discussing, Jesuits were accustomed um, uh, uh, right across the world, part and part of their global mission, uh, to putting on playlists as a way to present the Christian faith to uneducated people. I don't think it's at all unlikely that in the recusant milieu of Tudor and Stuart England, um, such dramatic events might have been seen as a way to, uh, of appealing to relatively uneducated individuals, particularly women. And G does note snidely, as I say, that such visions appear invariably to um, be granted to women. Well, I mentioned uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, earlier about how, um, these, uh, how dramatic performances were regarded by early modern Jesuits as analogical demonstrations that reveal God's purpose. Vehicles for proselytising in which theatrical illusion wasn't seen as deceitful, but was seen as revelatory of a higher truth. And I can believe, actually, that Francis Pierce, Jesuit mentors, might have sincerely thought that it would benefit her to, wit uh, to witness a personated apparition that she needed to be persuaded of a vocation to the cloister, for her own good, also the good her money could do in the church. That a stage vision would be representing to her what they saw as being God's will for her. Well, of course, there is a moral problem here. Um, not just, uh, well, not in the stage in itself, perhaps, but in overriding the imaginative contract that, one enter, uh, that all of us as audience members enter into when you undertake to watch a play. Drama that doesn't declare itself as such. Drama that, change, that does, however, aim to change somebody's mindset through invoking supernatural wonder. That's coercive. And I can see exactly how such an undertaking would have looked to a hostile observer. I think it's 
possible that um, that in too much zeal um, uh, to gain converts and vocations, finance the mission, all you know, perfectly um, uh, uh, um, good aims in themselves. Some Catholic priests in Germany, in Tudor Stuart even might have gone that bit too far. They weren't used to going undercover. Equivocation and improvisation often came with the territory. I can believe that standard notions of transparency were sometimes suspended for the sake of getting better results. And further, while there's only a limited amount you can learn from a se um, Gene's second-hand accounts of a conversation written by an avowedly antagonistic author, um, the, the element of uh, deceit in Gene's story does appear um, uh, uh, is presented as arising from suppression and suggestion rather than outright falsehood. Because Frances Peart isn't deliberately told she's seen the vision of St. Lucy. She's told, uh, you may see what it is to be a Catholic in our church. Thus doth God work his miracles amongst us daily. And by such visions does God commonly reveal himself unto us. So the wording does stress this idea of analogy. And anything more is in the mind of the beholder, even if it's, um, uh, um, uh, well, um, to use the um, covering analogy, a forced card. Well, most of all, I consider Gee's story plausible in the light of uh, the basic motivation of medieval and early modern Christian drama, which is to, caution, uh, to establish people on the right path, to put them in mind of their latter end, to caution them against sin. Um, and in this period, optical illusion was sometimes deployed for the same purpose. Gee's well aware of this clearly when he speculates on how supernatural effects might be achieved by paper lanterns and transparent glasses. He's describing some form of magic lantern here. Um, this was a technology um, a, a, that would have been known. Prototypes date from late medieval times. Um, here's one um, a drawing from the late 15th century. You can see how it's projecting an image of the devil. Um, and, um, and, um, and, um, and there was considerable interest in optics in the early modern era, not least among Jesuits. Jesuits often were um, in the forefront of scientific advancement at this time. Um, and um, they developed the idea of the magic lantern. Um, and they used it um, particularly to project macabre images to put audience in mind of death, hell, purgatory. Um, and to such an extent that um, the, the device was even called um, a lantern of fear. Um, and um, and this, is, uh, this use is particularly well illustrated in a treatise that's published some 30 years later from the text I've been discussing, which is by the Jesuit Athanasius Kircher, Ars Magna Lucis et Umbrae, The Great Art of Light and Shade. Um, and here's one of the illustrations. Um, you can see just to the right that a person in purgatorial fire coming from this magic lantern. Um, and... There's another one. Uh, you, can, uh, uh, you can see um, the death with a, with a scythe and an hourglass. And there is a story that uh, Kirscher used his magic lantern at night to project images of death on, um, onto the windows of apostates to scare them back into the church. Um, well, in the 20th and 21st centuries... Um, one thinks of Jesuits and Catholic priests in general as um, quite often featuring in horror films. <laughs> um, one should also note perhaps that they appear to have pioneered the very idea of horror film. Um, in special effects like Kirschens, you can see how, um, uh, um, that, I think. Um, and... Um, they're analogous in many ways to the diabolism, the unsettling supernatural imminence of the theatrical events I've been describing today. 
But I believe it would be unfair to uh, see the English Jesuits as engaging in gratuitous schlock. Um, and, um, well, looked at from uh, the distance of our own much more safe and tolerant times, one might question the means they used. But one mustn't forget that they practiced illusion in the service of what they saw as truth and evoked hell to scare their audience heavenward. Thank you very much.